you have your Bibles, take them and turn to John chapter 17, or you will find the text on the back of your sermon outline, along with a number of Bible verses that we will touch on today, and, and there'll be a few more not listed on the back of your sermon outline, but you can jot those down for reference. You know, you know I have the optimistic view that you actually take notes and that you actually take them home, and on Sunday afternoon, you might reflect on what was said and pray and ask the Lord to apply God's Word to your life in new ways. So that's why we print these in the bulletin for you. And while you're turning there, let me just tell you that my father used to say this to me. If a job's worth doing, it's worth doing right. Have you ever heard that? Did anybody else's father ever teach them that? If a job's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And he would say, you know, nobody's perfect, but always, son, he said, do the best that you can do. And the Bible says, whatever your work might be, do it with all your heart as unto the Lord. Your work. I wonder if you've ever considered that Jesus referred to his time here on earth as work. Does that surprise you? Today we're going to focus on John 17 verses 4 and 5. And if I could be so bold, there are times when I think that these two verses actually summarize the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And you will find the truths in Genesis pregnant here, and you will find the truth in Revelation pregnant here in these two verses. For Jesus, in this high priestly prayer, now says to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. When we speak of Jesus, you know that we love Jesus. Oh, we love him in this church. And the way that we come to love him is that we learn together about who he is and what he has done for us. We call that the exploration of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Two very important words, and every Christian should learn them, that when we celebrate Jesus, we celebrate his person and his work. And our text today in this passage talks primarily about what? His work. He says, I have accomplished the work you gave me to do. And the more we understand this, the more we re respond to him with a heart of wonder and worship and praise. So this morning, we have some work to do, and our work is to study the work of Jesus Christ, okay? Don't be lazy today. You're going to work now, and I want your hearts to be filled with wonder and gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. See, someone would hear Jesus pray that prayer and they would say, work? What work? And now you need to know the rest of the Bible. 
And we learn that actually Jesus fulfilled what the theologians call the intra-Trinitarian covenant behind the scenes. Before he even came to earth, Apparently, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had a strategic planning committee meeting, okay? There was a strategic planning committee. Some of you have had that in the course of your work or your business. And together, they spoke about what must now happen to glorify God and to accomplish the redemption of His people on earth. And so, the Father planned your salvation, and the Son accomplished your salvation. And the Holy Spirit applied that salvation to you. Do you understand? That's what they agreed would happen, must happen, in this intra-Trinitarian covenant. They call it, among the theologians in Latin, and I don't know much Latin, this is the pactum salutis, the pact of salvation, or technically the covenant of salvation, made within the Trinity. God had this conversation with himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each with their own particular assignments. Friends, the work of Jesus Christ actually began in heaven before he came to earth. Did you know that? And once again, I'm going to quote John 6:38, which I have quoted now almost every week in our sermon study where Jesus said, For I came down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And I've been focusing on the second half of that verse. You know how astounding it is that he surrendered his will and to do the will of the Father. But today, I just want to point out the first part of that verse. Middle of his ministry, as he's walking along and teaching, Jesus says, For I came down from heaven... And he is cognizant that he is sent with a purpose. He is sent on a mission. He has come to do his, what he calls, work for you and me. The Father plans the salvation of his people. The Son accomplishes that salvation. The Holy Spirit applies that salvation to our lives. And, and if you go to the very next verse, John six thirty nine. Jesus tells us, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And lo and behold, what did we study last week? That part of the prayer of Jesus, where he said, Father, I have lost none of those you have given me. Indeed, he has done his work. Now, Look at how this uh, verse starts, verse 4. He says, I glorified you on earth. And I want you to understand that the heart of Jesus is for the glory of God. He lived to glorify his Father. And we live in such a proud and arrogant world where we are so hungry and thirsty for glory. It is in our flesh to want fame and applause. But Jesus, Jesus is self-forgetting, self-effacing technically. Jesus is self-forgetting. Why? Because he lives for the Father's glory, to exalt his name. And now at the end of his life, 
the end of his earthly ministry, in prayer, he says, and I remember the glory from which I have come, and now it is time, it is time for you to take me home, to bring me back into that glory. My mission is fulfilled. What did Jesus do for us, this work of Christ? You heard it in the songs we sang. You heard it in the confession of faith that we read. What Jesus accomplished was what we call the active and the passive obedience of Christ. Crucial terms. I told you you're going to work today. You're going to learn about Jesus today, and you must come to appreciate this work that he has announced he has done is the active and the passive obedience of Christ. What is the active obedience? Well, that's what he did for you. His obedience in your stead, the active obedience of Christ, is his perfect fulfilling of all righteousness. What is his passive obedience? Passive obedience is what was done to him for you. His crucifixion and the substitutionary atonement. This is the work of Christ that he has accomplished for you. I love how in his book, uh, Systematic Theology, Wayne Grudem puts it like this. He says, If Christ had only earned forgiveness of sins for us, then we would not yet merit heaven. Think about this. Our guilt would have been removed, but we would simply be in the position of Adam and Eve uh, before they did anything good or bad. We would have been brought back to to, uh, go. But we would be where they were before uh, they could have passed the probation successfully. And they needed to obey for this period of time to obey God perfectly and then show that he would confirm with his favor their righteousness, uh, confirm their righteousness, you see. But Adam and Eve failed. But the point that Wayne Grudem is making is that um, Christ's act of obedience then is more than just his suffering and dying, but his perfect obedience to the law of God his entire life long, which is credited to your account. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 9, he says, not having a righteousness of my own according to the law, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, he says, Christ is our righteousness. And we read it earlier, for as, this is Romans 5, 19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. Who's that? Adam. So by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Who's that? Jesus Christ. In the evangelical world today, there is a tremendous emphasis, happily so, on the passive obedience of Jesus Christ, the death of Christ for the atonement for our sins. But there is a great vacancy of discussion. There is a great uh, desperate need. 
for the church to embrace the active obedience of Jesus Christ, the work of Christ on our behalf, so often neglected by the theologians and the preachers and the pastors and the small group leaders and the Sunday school teachers. What he has done for us. And Wade and Grudem says, ask yourself this, Whose lifelong obedience would you rather rely on for your standing before God on the judgment day? Christ's or your own? Are you willing to rely on Christ alone? In Christ alone my hope is found, we sing. He is my light, my strength my song. Jesus, as you read through the four Gospels, is very aware of his work that he's coming to do. And in his book, Kingdom Prologue, Meredith Klein points out that his, his even sense of messianic identity is bound up in his work that he's come to do, this passive obedience. He says in John 10, 18, he says, I have come to lay down my life and I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and take it up again. Now listen to this. This charge I have received from my Father. So apparently in that strategic planning committee, in the Pactum Salutis, in the covenant of redemption before he was sent into the world, he agreed, you will go and you will lay down your life. In Luke 12, verse 50, Jesus says this strange statement to his disciples. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What's he talking about here? Here he's talking about his entrance into death, into that watery death ordeal that would be his, and he calls it a baptism, but it is his death that he knows he must enter into his passive obedience. But he knew that his active obedience was utterly necessary. And so when Jesus earlier on came to be baptized by John the Baptist, does anybody remember what happened? Jesus shows up to be baptized, and what does John the Baptist say? Oh, no. No, I'll baptize all these others, but not you. And Jesus says, oh, yes, for all righteousness must be fulfilled. And he will obey. He will fulfill all righteousness. And so he is sent into the world. Galatians 4, verse 4, understand the work of Jesus Christ. But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Jesus was sent to redeem you. And, oh, friends, very significantly, as Jesus came to do the work, he is identified in the Bible as the faithful covenant keeper and the true Israel. And this, this you must not miss. We are told in 1 Corinthians 15.45, Thus it is written, listen to this, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, 
became a life-giving spirit. Who's that last Adam? It's Jesus. Verse 47, the first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, Jesus Christ. And then he is sent as the fulfillment of the prophecy of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 46 and Isaiah 49, where we read in, I'm sorry, Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, 42.6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And Israel was supposed to be that, but Israel failed to be that. And when Jesus is born and they take him to the temple, an old man, Simeon, sings his song, and he announces that in this child is the light to lighten the Gentiles. Jesus is the fulfillment and the covenant given for the people, the faithful covenant keeper. I hope you understand and that this is absolutely clear to you. Oh, friends, this is my life burden that we understand and we proclaim this work of Jesus Christ for sinners like us. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was on probation. In the land flowing with milk and honey, They were brought into the land flowing with milk and honey and national Israel was on probation and their probation was this, obey and live, disobey and die. And Adam disobeys and is expelled from the garden. And Israel, not the the individuals, they were saved by grace and through faith. But for national Israel, they are expelled from the land as Adam was expelled from the garden. Failures. But the true covenant servant has come. The last Adam has come. And where they failed, he stood. And he has accomplished the work the Father sent him to do. Now, in the course of this prayer, Jesus doesn't talk about all his job descriptions, but he has many, and he has several, and he fulfills them perfectly. If my dad said to me, uh, if it's worth doing, do it right, I want you to understand that whatever God called Jesus to do, he did it right. These next couple of weeks are going to be wonderful studies in God's word together. But what we see popping up throughout this prayer is Jesus simply announcing, I did the work. What work? The work of prophet, the work of priest, the work of king. I did them. All the Old Testament mediatorial offices. What's a mediator? Someone who stands in between two others. And the great mediatorial work of those prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ perfectly for you and for me. And it's startling. Look what he says in verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and come to know in truth that I came from you. I gave them the word. Let's ask, what does a prophet do? Do Does anybody know the job description for 
for a prophet? The prophet speaks for God. He is an agent of revelation. And he stands facing the people, and he delivers the word, and he says, Thus saith the Lord. Right? But here's the problem. In the Old Testament, there were true prophets, but there were a lot of false prophets and bad prophets. And to make it even worse, who did the people usually go to? Well, they just scurried right after the false prophets. Why? Well, we're told because the false prophets tell them what they want to hear. Poor true prophet over here. He's got the unpopular message. And so the people... They don't have ears to hear. They don't want to hear it. But Jesus announces in John 17, 8, in this prayer, he says, I gave them the words you gave me, and they have received them and come to know that you sent me. Oh, friends. When it comes to studying the uh, great mediatorial works of Jesus, the book of Hebrews is our teacher. And the very first sentence in the book of Hebrews goes like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And Jesus is our prophet. Pastor John is not your prophet. No priest, no minister, no pope, no rabbi should ever be called your prophet. Jesus is your prophet, the prophet of prophets, the great one who delivers the word of God faithfully. And he told us that in John 12, 49, here's this pactum salutis strategic planning committee meeting. Jesus must have been checking his notes when we get to John 12, 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. He's the prophet. Is he your prophet? Whose voice do you listen to? On the radio? On the editorial pages? Is he your prophet? North Shore Community Church, is he our prophet? Yes, he is. John 6, 63, Jesus said, The words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Now, if the prophet stands between God and the people and faces the people, what does the priest do? What work, what's the work of the priest? Well, the work of the priest is to stand 180 degrees in the opposite direction, standing between the people and God. And what does the priest do? He prays on behalf of the people, and he offers sacrifices on behalf of the people. And lo and behold, what did we see in verse 9, where Jesus speaks of his work? He says in John 17, 9, of his disciples, I pray for them, Jesus prays for you. Hebrews 7.25 For he is able to save completely 
those who come to the Father through him, for he ever lives to intercede for them. Your salvation is secure, not based on your performance, but because of the one who ever lives to intercede for you. He is the great priest. Now, I got to say this. Some of our Jewish friends are going to say, wait, 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 just a minute. How can Jesus be the great high priest? He's not a Levite. Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. These are the, 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 the priestly tribe, right? You're claiming Jesus is a priest. Well, remember Saul. Saul tried to act like a priest and got in big trouble because he was not of the tribe of Levi. How can Jesus be the fulfillment of the great high priest? And I remember listening to R.C. Sproul talk about this, and he says, listen, oh, my friends, to understand the priestly work of Jesus Christ, the priestly work perfect of Jesus Christ, you need to go back to the most quoted psalm in the Old Testament, which is Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is the great messianic psalm that prophesies that in the day to come there will be a great king and a great ruler in Zion, but who will also be a priest. And it tells us what's so special about that priest. Listen to this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What? Yeah, that's right. The Messianic priest won't be a Levite. He's not disqualified. Why? Because he comes from the higher order, the greater order of priests. Who was Melchizedek? Anybody know? You go way back into Genesis. Yes, the Levites came out of Abraham's loins, and they were subordinate to Abraham. But who was Abraham subordinate to? Who did he meet? Melchizedek, and he bows low before him and offers him tribute. Jesus is not like the Levitical priests. Why? Because they have to offer sacrifices for themselves. There's a lot in the Bible about how the priests offer atoning sacrifices for their sins before they go and do the priestly work. But Jesus will never have to do that. Why not? Because he's sinless. And the blood of bulls and goats ultimately does not atone for sins. Only the perfect Lamb of God, offered with pure hands and a clean heart, clean hands and a pure heart can do it. And so Jesus is both priest and sacrifice. And he rises from the dead and enters in to a ministry of prayer. It's called the session of Jesus Christ. That's the technical term where he sits and prays for his people with kingly authority and priestly authority for us forever. Oh, friends, in a few minutes we'll take communion and I will remind you of the priestly work of Jesus Christ. Every baptized Christian revels in taking the cup and believing that it is the blood of Christ shed for you that preserves you to eternal life. And your heart is thankful. Is he your priest? Is he your priest? 
And then, finally, we see in this prayer that Jesus has come from glory and is destined for glory. Why is that? It's because he is the king of heaven. And what does a king do? A king protects his people. He guards his people. What does a king do? He governs his people. He gives them commands. What does the king do? The great kings share their glory with his people and seats them at his table. And what do you know? We read here in this text, John 17, 12, Jesus says, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. You see, that's kingly work. He governs his people. We'll see this in a few weeks in verse 21. He says, as the Father sent me, so I send them. We call that the Great Commission. Jesus is governing us. He does govern us. He's our king. And does he share his glory with us? Oh, look at the very end of the prayer. He says, Father... I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Where's that? Heaven. To see my glory. To receive my glory. To live and breathe my glory. At the end of the Bible, we talked about Adam and Eve at the beginning. At the end of the Bible, when Jesus Christ appears again in glory, we will read something. We will read something on his robe and on his thigh. What is that? It is written of him that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And we will fall in behind him in his train, following our king. And now, O Father, he says in verse 5, glorify me with the glory I, uh, glory I had with you before the world even was. The work of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ. On the cross, he cried out. Do you remember? On the cross, he cried out. It is finished. And so it was. My dad used to say to me, if you're going to do a job, do it right. And I must confess, there are times when I have not done my job right. Whatever. Obeying your parents. Telling the truth. Keeping your heart pure. Your speech perfect. There are times when I have not been humble. There are times when I have not been gracious. There are times when I've hurt my wife or my children. There are times when I've not loved the church well according to, my, to the very charge I've been given. There are times when I have not done my work right. How about you? Are there times when you have not done your work right? So whose righteousness? 
do you want to stand on? Whose righteousness? I tell you, there's no one like Jesus, none like Jesus. In Christ alone, can you say it today? In Christ alone, I take my stand. If you have never trusted Christ, if you've lived under this illusion that, yes, I'm happy to have my sins forgiven, and then I will show up at the bar of justice proclaiming my excellence and my performance, put that aside. Put that aside. And look to the one who did his work right. Let's pray. Today, our Father, we thank you for this one who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we are so thankful. We are amazed. We thank you for the covenant of redemption, that intra-Trinitarian discussion, agreement, pact, covenant that you made, and Jesus, that you fulfilled for us. We thank you. And today, especially today, we thank you for your righteousness. Lamb of God, you took our sins. Priest of God, you offered up yourself. Prophet of God, you told us the words of the Father that we needed to hear, and your words are spirit and life to us. King of kings, it is clear to us today that our lives are not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and in death to you. And we thank you, and we are glad to be your children and your servants. As we come to the table now, Lord, you know where we are malnourished. You know where we are weak. You know where we are sinful. And so we don't want to try and fool you or ourselves, but we cast ourselves upon you now. In Jesus' name, amen.